distressed, I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me free. <laughs> the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look at triumph on those who hate me. It is better to make refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me, surround me on every side. And in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard, so I had almost fallen. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are at the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely. He's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. Oh, pray, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festive sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will exalt you. We'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. This is the blessed word of our Lord. Amen. And all God's people say, amen. Love that song. I love our time together this morning. It's good to be back with you. Thank you, Alan Michael, for preaching last week. Uh, good to be back with you from Ecuador. Uh, I preached, I did something for the first time last week that uh, I've ever done. I preached in Spanish. And uh, so that is uh, kind of a wild and crazy adventure. I've spoken Spanish for years, uh, majored in Spanish in college, but never preached in the language. And that's quite a different experience. And so I had this fear. So here's my fear uh, of this one word. I, I remember telling Rebecca, who was on our trip, I have this, she spoke Spanish too. And I said, Rebecca, I have this grave fear uh, because there's this word for sin called pecado. And then there's the word for fish called pescado. And I kept thinking, Jerry, don't say you're dead in your fish. <laughs> like, for some reason, that will not go over too well. Uh, but but I, I gauged by their response that they nodded and uh, uh, responded as they should. So hopefully it made sense to them. Beautiful country, by the way. Most amazing 
beautiful country, Ecuador, uh, to be in and beautiful people. Well, this morning we continue in our, our series as God has really, as a church, brought us to this place of prayer this summer. It has been a remarkable summer at Grace. And it has been amazing to see the fruit and the results when God's people pray. And so this morning, this is where we are. And we come to uh, a psalm that belongs to a group of six psalms called the Hallel Psalms. All right, so this is the last of the six, uh, the Hallel Psalms, 113 through 118. And these psalms were read or sung at the Passover celebration. Now, in light of that, I want you to keep in mind then that the psalm we're looking at today would be the very last words of God out of Jesus' mouth before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, so when he's in the upper room with his disciples and they're celebrating the Passover, this would be the last thing that Jesus would read or that they perhaps would sing together because Scripture says they sang a song at the end of that. And so perhaps uh, this was the song they sang, but these psalms were read, some of them before the meal and the last two, 17 and 18, after the meal. This is a psalm of thanksgiving, and the title of the message today is How to Pray When You're Grateful. We talked about how to pray when you've blown it, how to pray when you're excited and you want to praise God, but how to pray when you're grateful. And we discover this, uh, this development here uh, throughout the psalm. Thank God for who he is. Thank God for what he has done for you. Thank God for what he has done to you. And then finally, thank God for who he is again. So it's like a sandwich of thanking God for who he is. That's uh, the Oreos, right? And the cream in the middle is to thank God for what he has done for you. And then the more difficult, I think, at times is to thank God for what he has done to you. Uh, give thanks to the Lord for who he is. Well, who is he? He is good, uh, the psalmist says. His steadfast love. This is an interesting word. One word in the Hebrew that has multiple uh, translations in um, the English. Uh, some translations say steadfast love. Other newer translations say loyal love. Um, Loving kindness is the old uh, way of translating this, the older way. Uh, the difficulty is that it's hard to take one word or two even and, and encapsulate this idea of uh, kesed is the Hebrew word, this uh, steadfast love of God. It is indeed found, though, in covenants, in covenant thinking and in God who makes covenants with us, covenants so very different from contracts, all right? But God who is a covenant-making God. So let me touch on a couple of these in the Old Testament to give you an idea of the steadfast love of God demonstrated by covenant. The first one is Noah, the flood, the flood has happened, the boat now rests, the ark rests on the mountain, and God has a conversation with Noah saying, I'll never, ever, ever bring rain that destroys the entire earth again. And the way I will prove that to you is by using a what? 
a rainbow. It's just that in Scripture, it doesn't say rainbow. Now, it is a rainbow, but it says bow. Look at this. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every, every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, uh, the sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So this word bow that is used here and all throughout this covenant that God is making with Noah is an instrument of war. It, it, it describes a bow that you put an arrow in and shoot uh, someone in battle. So, so what does this mean? Perhaps uh, all of the cultural things that uh, in the past and present now are associated with rainbows has clouded our thinking. But when you see a bow in the clouds, uh, that bow uh, is, uh, is a picture of weapon. So how in the world could this be love? Let's read on. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters will never again flood. When uh, the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. Notice this covenant, everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God says it again, uses covenant language again. All right, so here's what we glean and understand from the bow that is in the clouds. When you have a bow for weaponry, you have a taut string on the ends of it, and then you put uh, an arrow in that string, and you release the arrow, and the arrow then, then kills the person that, that receives it. When you look at the bow in the clouds, if you were to put a string between the two ends, who would the arrow hit should the arrow be put in it? It would hit God. The bow is, isn't facing the earth. You say, Jerry, what in the world does that mean? God is saying, before I will ever destroy the earth again, I will destroy myself. So, Jerry, are you sure? Let's go forward 400 years God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur in Mesopotamia, not because Abraham is anything at all, Abraham was an idolater. Scripture shows us that. God calls him out, calls him to a new place. He travels 1,100 miles. God makes a covenant with him. It is also an everlasting covenant. He puts Abraham to sleep. But before he does, he instructs Abraham to take some animals, three animals uh, and a couple of birds, and sacrifice them. So Abraham took the larger animals, sacrificed them, cut their pieces in half, laid half on this side, half on another side. Why would he do that? Because in Abraham's day, if a greater king and a lesser king made a covenant between one another, they would take animals, cut them in half. They would put half over here, half on one side. And the lesser king would pass through the animals and look up at the greater king and say to the greater king, may it be done to me as has been done to this animals if I do anything to break this covenant. Meaning if I break it, rip me apart. But something interesting happened. Abraham prepared the sacrifice. God set put him in a deep sleep. And when God did, a boiling pot came down and that boiling pot moved among the pieces of the meat representing God. What? No, God, you are the greater. Abraham is the lesser. Why you, God, the greater and Abraham the lesser? Why would you pass between the two, the, the pieces? 
Well, we might say, well, God is passing between the pieces. He would be expected to say, may it be done to me as has been done to these if I break this covenant. It's just that God never breaks covenants. So what is he saying? Don't miss this. May it be done to these. May it be done to me as has been done to these if you, Abraham, break the covenant. Would Abraham break it? Yeah. Just like Noah did shortly after the ark. And so, who would be ripped to pieces? Jesus. Who would be torn in two? Whose body would be pierced? Jesus. The bow points toward heaven. Now, when you look at a rainbow, different thoughts ought to go through your head, shouldn't they? Here's the God say, I'll die so that you may live. I'll die so that you may live. So when we see the word loving kindness or steadfast love or loyal love, this is a covenant love of a God who is saying, I'll go to the lens to show you and to give you such deep love. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, Psalm 118, it was intended to be sung in a large congregation or stated. It's a responsive singing or a responsive reading. I want to do it with you. All right, I want you to give it what you got, all right, with some force and some oomph. Because here is how it would go. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good. And then the congregation would say, for his steadfast love endures forever. This happens four times. Let's do it. Are you ready? Listen to yourselves. This is powerful. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let Israel say, Let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, let Grace Community Church say, amen, amen. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for who he is good. Give thanks to the Lord for who he is. Number two, give thanks to the Lord for what he has done for you. David says, out of my distress, that word distress only occurs three times in Scripture. All right, you've got to tuck that away. Uh, this means this is a dire situation. It only occurs three times in Scripture, and it means a straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, uh, a narrow place, uh, a place where you cannot get out of easily. All right, so it's used to refer to the exile, and it's used to refer by one writer uh, uh, called distress, where the pangs of death and Sheol just grabbed hold of him. So what distress is the psalmist referring to? Well, the Passover celebrated Israel leaving Egypt. And so if the Passover celebrated Israel leaving Egypt, the psalmist is referring to the Exodus. So he is referring to their time in Egypt. Listen, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built store cities, Pithom, Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in the dread of the people of Israel, 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So we're talking about ruthless ruthless treatment of Israel as slaves, number one, and number two, genocide. Those are the two things we're talking about. Killing all the baby boys. That, my friends, is distress. The word is used sparsely in Scripture and ought to be used sparsely in life. With that reality in mind, consider the next two verses. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Israel was hated. They were hated by the Egyptians, just like the Jews were hated in the Holocaust. Unbelievable treatment. So what happened? How in the world, in the midst of hatred, in the midst of slave driving, in the midst of genocide, can you say, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Wow. It was our last day in Ecuador on Monday. I was working with, uh, with the uh, kids in the orphanage and uh, just to translate and get them ready to see one of the docs. And there was a little girl, she was three or four, and she was flanked by probably a couple, uh, by a couple girls who were probably seven or eight years old. And one of them did something to her, and she just began to cry. And so there are about 90 kids in this orphanage. And uh, I picked her up, and when I did, and just put her on my shoulder, she clung to me. It wasn't the, the typical, I picked up crying kids many times, it wasn't the typical uh, response that I thought a kid would have if they're hurting. It, it was clinging to me. And as I carried her around for about uh, 10 minutes, her cry began to calm down and she was just kind of breathing heavily and sighing on my shoulder. And it dawned on me just a few minutes in, she is not crying because only because of what this little girl has done to her, but she just needs a mom and a dad. You know, she's she's Though she cannot process it at the age of three or four, she knows something's missing. And she just took refuge in my arms. For about ten minutes, she did. That's what the psalmist is referring to. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Look at verses 8 and 9. In light of the context of this, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All right, so it's important to remember what distress is and what distress isn't. Uh, Distress isn't losing the championship game. That isn't distress. Distress isn't the person at the drive-thru getting your order wrong. All right. That isn't distress. Distress isn't the, 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 the person who does your hair just maybe making the wrong snip with scissors. Hair grows back for most of us. <laughs> that isn't distress. 
Um, the psalmist describes distress in, distress in verses 10 through 13. Listen to the words. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. Surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was fallen, but the Lord helped me. Distress is when your problem surrounds you to the degree that all you can see is your problem. That is distress. Distress is being surrounded by your problem. And when you wake up in the morning, you see it. And you go to bed at night, and you see it. And you can see nothing else but it, right? What is distress? It is a cancer diagnosis. That's distress. I've been here 16 and a half years, and I've walked with you, many of you, through many different journeys in your life. Distress is a rebellious child who repeatedly refuses to obey. That is distress. Distress is the news that your husband or wife has been unfaithful to you. It is the sudden and unexpected death of a family member. Distress is when your house burns. It is the hurricane, the flood, the tornado, the earthquake. Distress is not being loved by your parents. That is distress. It is being repeatedly bullied at school. Distress is physical abuse or sexual abuse. Distress is being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Most of our lives have seasons of distress. Thank God they're just seasons. They come and they go. How does the psalmist respond? The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 14, this is the victory song. If you go back to Exodus 15, I think along verse 2 or 3, this is the victory song that Israel sang when they're on the other side of the Red Sea, and they look back, and the Pharaoh and his army has been overtaken by the sea rushing in, and they sing the song, the Lord the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So what does the song mean? Quickly, what does it mean? It means in the moment, in, in the middle of distress, the Lord is your strength and the Lord is your song, even though you cannot see your salvation yet. It means that when you're staring down a problem that just won't go away, in that moment, the Lord is your strength. In that moment, the Lord is your song. And at some point, he will become your salvation. Amen? If you've been through distress, and there's people in the room who've been through distress, you have discovered that in the middle of your distress, there is a God who is your strength, there is a God who is your song, and one day you'll stand on the Red Sea of your distress and sing the song of victory, amen? We will do that one day, amen? That's what this says. Give thanks to the Lord for what he has done for you. And that's easy to give thanks to the Lord for, but the third uh, reason to be grateful is so hard. 
Give thanks to the Lord for what he has done to you. Look at verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Look at this. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. There are two kinds of distresses. The one you never saw coming, right? But then there's the kind that you bring on yourself. And the one you never saw coming, God is your help. And the one that you bring on yourself, God is your heavenly parent who will discipline you. He will discipline his kids. That's what this says. Hebrews gives us probably the best picture, I think, in all of Scripture of this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. And the church says, amen. Right, It all seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, so my parents came along before uh, sending you to time out was invented. All right, that's a recent invention. Uh, for all you younger people, time out is a recent invention. And uh, either we live too far back in the hills of Tennessee or it wasn't yet discovered. All right, so in place of the, new, the now new time out rule, uh, it was belt or switch. All right, that's what dad used, not bait or switch, belt. All right, leather belt or a switch. And so in my stubbornness one time, only once, only once, I remember after having received a due whipping with the belt, I turned around to look at my father and say, well, that didn't hurt that much. (laughs) That was really stupid. Because my father then thought, well, if you didn't think it hurt that much, maybe I should convince you that it can, which he did. It worked. I still remember it. Uh, All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Some of you are sitting here right now, and because of your sin, you are in God's discipline. It is not a distress from outside. It's one from the inside of your own making, of your own doing, and God is whipping you in a sense. He's disciplining you. The discipline can come in all kinds of forms and shapes and sizes, but God, if you're his kid, will get your attention. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. That's what the writer here says. And you should be thankful because it shows you're his kid. If he didn't discipline you, he wouldn't be your daddy. And there's hope in that the one who gives the discipline can also give the healing needed to walk straight again. 
Finally, give thanks to the Lord again for who he is. Look at verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. I want to make a few observations that any of you could make on these verses. Look at this. Open to me the gates of righteousness. First of all, uh, the psalmist would never say that if he could open the gate himself. So we discover right away that the psalmist cannot open the gate of righteousness. Neither can you, neither can I. There is a gate of righteousness, and I can't go through it unless someone opens it for me. That's discovery number one. Discovery number two is this, is that if I want to get to the Lord, I have to go through the gate of righteousness. Look at, look at this, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. If I'm going to get to him, I have to go through gates I cannot open. So there are gates I cannot open. Someone else needs to open. If I want to get to the Lord, I need to open them. And third, the ultimate distress is seen here. The ultimate tight spot in life is unrighteousness. The ultimate distress is sin. The ultimate need I have is to be righteous. It is what I long for. It is what I desire. Yet I can't even open the gates to get to it. And I can't even get to the Lord on my own. Who will do it? Who will do it then? Who will approach the gates of righteousness and dare lay his hands on those gates and open those gates for me because I so long to be righteous and to be rid of my sin and to be rid of my shame and to be rid of my fear and to be rid of my doubt. Who will open the gates of righteousness and look at me as an unrighteous, unholy man and say, come in? Who will do it? Well, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he made a triumphal entry in Jerusalem, and the people shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you look at verse 26 of Psalm 118, you will find that those people, without realizing this would have been fresh on their minds, they have just celebrated the Passover, so they have just read this chapter. And on their mind, they have no idea they're announcing that the one coming in is the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 26 here. But then in a sharp turn of events, they rejected the very one they had blessed. Look at verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Just quickly, a cornerstone is the stone that went naturally, as you would think, on the corner by which the entire building was plumb, was straight. And they rejected that stone. And the one they rejected... The builder said, no, 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 that stone you're throwing away, I want for myself. I want to put it on the corner. It will become the cornerstone. So here's the question. Does Jesus agree? Does Jesus agree? Let's look at Matthew. Jesus is talking. He says, hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent them his what class? His son. He 
sent his son. Track with me. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? These are Pharisees Jesus is talking to. They're trapped. They said to them, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their se- in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? Well, he knew they had. They just read them the day. That, that, that he knew they had read these scriptures. They read them every Passover. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Wow. Give thanks to the Lord for who he is. Well, who is he? He is the one who opens the gates of righteousness. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus says, hey, that's me. Hey, hey, go back to Psalm 18. It's talking about me. Just listen to Psalm 18. I'm all over it, and you cannot see it, though I am in front of you. Well, would Peter agree? It's Acts chapter 4. Peter is preaching this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. Psalm 8, 118, this Hallel Psalm at the end of the Passover is such a prediction of Jesus himself. Who is this God who would look down on us as meager human beings and say to Noah, Noah, I'll put a bow in heaven. And before I destroy the earth with the flood, I'll release an arrow from that bow, and it will pierce my very heart. And that's what happened on the cross. Amen? Who is this God who puts Abraham to sleep and says, Abraham, while you're asleep, my presence will pass through this, uh, these animals that you have cut into halves. And when I do, I will say to you, may it be done to me if you, Abraham, break this covenant. And so Abraham did. Everyone did after him. And so God would send his only son, Christ, who would be torn into his flesh, ripped his head, uh, crowned with thorns, spikes, driven through his, uh, his hands and through his feet. God would send Jesus to do that. And now for a moment, as uh, those who will be serving communion come, I want to ask you a question. Would you, in your mind's eye, As a matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to do something I never do, but close your eyes for a moment. And in your mind's eye, imagine Jesus and the uh, 12 disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper. They have served everything. Now they're serving the, uh, Jesus is about to take the bread and the wine. And he's about to give them an object lesson of his own body. But before he does that, he would read this psalm. Now, with your eyes closed, I want you to listen to some of the last words he would have read. Bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That was real good news for them, real bad news for Jesus. Bind the festal 
sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now open your eyes and you'll begin to receive the bread and the cup. As you do, I want to say a couple of things and then I'll finish the sermon. You do not have to be a member of grace to take with us the Lord's Supper, but you must be a member of God's family. If you do not know Christ, or if there is unconfessed, undealt with sin in your life, then simply pass the tray on. We won't judge you at all. We're thrilled you're here. But this is so special. This is given to help us remember the death of Jesus. So Jesus here then would have finished reading. And as he would have finished reading, this is what you would have heard. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He was the cornerstone, wasn't he? This is the Lord's doing. By the way, hold your cups and your bread. We'll all take it together at the end. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What is the day that the psalmist refers to? The day of salvation. The day of delivery. And that day was only possible because Jesus would be bound by nails to the cross. So as Dave plays softly, would you just take the cup and the bread that many of you now already have and see the body and see the blood? If there is sin, now's the time to deal. If if you've dealt, now is the time to be grateful. Let's take a few moments and do that.